good morning. My name is Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to add my greeting to Wilson's. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to our Old Testament passage, Exodus chapter 24. And if you're new to the Bible, it's pretty easy to find. It's right close to the beginning. My Bible, it's page 77, second book. So Exodus chapter 24. Now, this sermon is a, is a continuation of a series of sermons that I began back in August where we've been going through the book of Exodus. And throughout this series, we've seen that God has a purpose, he has a mission, and, and he has this thing he's doing with Israel and with us. And we can sum it up in this phrase, God delivers his people from bondage to himself for the sake of the world. So back at the beginning of Exodus, we saw God do this just with Moses. God delivered Moses from death at the hands of Pharaoh. He was being sacrificed on the Nile River. Then God drew Moses to himself at Mount Sinai, the burning bush. And then God commissioned Moses, hey, I didn't just deliver you from death to stop there. I didn't just deliver you from death to bring you to myself to stop there. I delivered you from death to myself for a purpose, for a mission. And, I'm, and he commissioned Moses to go back to Egypt, this dangerous thing, and to be used by God to do the exact same move that God had done with him, with Israel, to deliver Israel from bondage to God at Mount Sinai, where Israel would then be commissioned and to live its life for the sake of the world. So when we turn to Exodus chapter 24, what has already happened is God has delivered Israel like he delivered Moses, and God has brought Israel to Mount Sinai. And starting in chapter 19, God, there's, this, there's this climactic moment where God and Israel are coming together. And when we get to chapter 24, this is the high point of that. Exodus 24 verses 1 to 11 is a wedding. It is God, the groom, marrying Israel, the bride. And what we're going to see is that in this wedding, there are four things that happen. And we're going to look at each one of these four things. And they open up throughout the rest of Scripture into this amazing kind of vision of what it means for us today, thousands of years later, to be God's people. Now, the four things that we see in the original wedding ceremony between God and Israel is blood, the Bible, vows, and a meal. Four things. The blood, the Bible, the vows, and the meal. We're going to take each one of these in turn. So let's start, first of all, with the blood. Exodus chapter 24, verse 5. Notice what it says. And Moses sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood of those sacrifices and he put it in basins. And half of the blood, so the first half he put in these bowls. Then it says the other half he threw against the altar. Now drop down to verse 8. Moses took the blood in the basins and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you 
in accordance with all these words. Now, there's four major things that happen in this wedding service, and this is definitely one of them. Now, the importance of this moment in Scripture, it's the only moment in the Bible where blood is sprinkled on the entire congregation. The importance of this moment in the whole of the Bible cannot be overstated. This moment, this sprinkling of the blood on the nation of Israel, this is about atonement. This is about the cleansing of sin. This is about transforming a sinful people into a holy nation. It has to do with the need to deal with sin. You see, God already delivered Israel from Egypt, but there's a problem. Israel didn't just live in Egypt. Egypt lived in Israel. God was having to deal. See, the problem is not just that they were a victim. It's the problem that they're also sinners. And God had to deal not only with their victim status. He not only had to rescue them, these victims. He not only had to deliver them and liberate them. He also had to deal with the fact that they were not innocent. That they carried with them sinful ways and sinful attitudes and sinful actions. Now... I can get that because that's me. I'm a victim. There are things people have done to me that are not fair. There's stuff that's happened to me that's not right. I didn't deserve COVID, right? You don't deserve cancer. You don't deserve your abuses and betrayals. Like It's not that simple, right? And, And we need God to deliver us. Some of us are born into generational kind of bondages, and we need deliverance from that kind of stuff. Some of us, our bodies have turned against us, and we need to be delivered from that. Some of us, before we even had a choice, we were bound to other gods and selfishness and things, and we need God to deliver us. But just because he delivers us from that stuff that's been done to us, what about all the stuff that we've done to others, right? I'm both victim and sinner. I can get this. And so here is God doing for Israel what Israel can't do for herself. Israel couldn't deliver herself and Israel couldn't cleanse herself, just like you and me. Now, as the years go by, Israel ends up back in slavery, back in death, back in bondage. And they need God's deliverance again. And they need forgiveness again. And centuries later, Israel is once again in slavery. And we have this book in the Bible called Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11, we have another one of those super like um, high points of scripture where you get a verse of scripture that kind of opens up into the whole range of the Bible. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11, God promises Israel that, look, because of the blood of the covenant that was sprinkled on you centuries ago, I'm going to stay true to the marriage with you, and I'm going to rescue you again from your bondage. Listen to how he says it. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant, Now, remember that, the blood of my covenant. I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. It's a promise God makes to Israel. Now, years later, on one Sunday, there's this young Galilean preacher, prophet, carpenter's son from Nazareth. That kind of sounded like Lin-Manuel, didn't it? 
Do you hear that? Preacher, prophet, carpenter, son from Nazareth. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in this daring fulfillment of Zechariah 9-11. And four days later, when the whole nation was celebrating the exodus at Passover time, longing for their final liberation that the scriptures promise, Jesus stands up and he quotes Exodus 24, verse 8. This blood of the covenant. And he quotes Zechariah 9-11, but he edits it. And he changes one word. This was our gospel reading. Jesus says, as he's celebrating the Passover meal, and he's quoting the Passover text, he changes them. This is not the blood of my covenant. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Did you hear it? Jesus said all along that blood that was sprinkled on Israel at Mount Sinai, it was pointing to something that is so mind-boggling. It's almost, I mean, it's just impossible to believe, right? That God himself took on flesh and did what animals couldn't do well enough. Did this thing. The blood that seals the covenant with God's people is no longer the blood of Moses' animals sacrificed at Mount Sinai. It's the blood of God himself in the flesh. The blood that Jesus was going to shed the next morning when he was crucified. And so the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 22, he's thinking about Exodus 24. And he's connecting it up to Matthew 26. And he tells us this. Because Jesus' blood has been shed, we can draw near to God, just like Israel was trying to get near to the mountain. We can get near to God. They had to have blood. We've got blood. Because Jesus' blood was shed, we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Part of what we do every Sunday when we kneel and confess our sins is that we are the forgiveness is pronounced over us so that we can remember, wait a minute, I don't deserve to draw near to God this morning. The reason I get to do this, the reason I get to worship, the reason I get to come near to God is because Jesus' blood was shed and it's been co- it covers me, it's been sprinkled on me. And so I... I don't have to carry a guilty conscience. Not that, that doesn't mean that you you don't have guilt. It means the guilt has been taken away. You see, all the types and shadows of the Old Testament were foreshadowing the death of Jesus. It's because of the precious blood of Jesus that we are washed and clean and enabled Sunday after Sunday to enter into worship, to approach God. So as we read Exodus 24 and we see Israel sprinkled with the blood of sacrificed animals, let us see a picture of Jesus' great sacrifice. And let's remember the cost of drawing near and the price of our forgiveness. Jesus died for you. And he died for me. He was crucified. He shed his own blood to cleanse us from our sin, to bring us into fellowship, into relationship with himself and with one another. And I'm so thankful because I need it. Because I had plenty to confess this morning. And I felt the weight of my shame. 
And because of Jesus' death, I can draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with my heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and my body washed with pure water, and you can too. Now, that's the first of the four elements of the wedding ceremony when God delivers Israel from Egypt to himself, and then they have this amazing ceremony. Now, let's go back, Exodus chapter 24, and let's see the second element, which is Scripture. In Exodus chapter 24... In verses 1 to 11, we have the wedding. And right in the middle of it, in verse 7, we're told that Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Now, what is this book of the covenant? Well, it's Exodus chapter 20 through 23. It's chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, and 21, 22, 23, all the laws that came out of those Ten Commandments. It's all, it's laws about all sorts of stuff, not just spiritual stuff, not just worship stuff, not just church stuff, not, it it starts there. It starts with God has certain rules for altars, but it goes on beyond that to things like cattle and cattle regulation. And remember, Jesus was once asked about all these laws because this can get quite complex. And his response was, look, love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And love your neighbor as yourself. A second is like it. Now, Jesus taught us that we need to see the laws of God as teaching what it means in concrete detail to love God and love neighbor. Like he, in other words, when Jesus summed up all the law as love God, love your neighbor, he's not telling you, Delete anything that doesn't talk about love God and neighbor. He's telling you all of God's law is teaching you what it actually means to love God and love neighbor. So according to Jesus, the purpose of God's rule is to get us to be truly human, fully human, to be what we were made to be. And right in the middle of this wedding ceremony where Israel was joined to God, we have this reading of the law. Why? Because it was God's wedding gift to Israel. Because the law is grace. It was a gift to Israel because they had been trained in Egypt how to treat another man's wife. And they had been trained in Egypt what politics looks like. And what power looks like. And how to relate to animals. And how to relate to creation. And so much of what they had been taught in Israel and Egypt was wrong. So as a gift to Israel, God said, look, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor because that'll wreck your neighborhood. It'll ruin neighborhoods when people start sleeping with other people's spouses, stealing other people's property. The Ten Commandments are the rules for a happy neighborhood. Live in a neighborhood that violates all of them? Is that the neighborhood you want to live in? Where your spouse is not safe and your vehicle is not safe and your property is not safe and your reputation is not safe? God's law is this gift. My point is, there is no law that God gives that's bad. There's no law that God gives that's bad for you. This was the wedding gift. We need something other than reason 
and intuition and science and logic and intelligence to find the good paths. Reason is not enough to find the best way to live. Genesis 1 to 11 shows us what life is like on earth without God's revelation. And so the giving of the law was this gift of God looking at his children saying, let me who created all of this show you the way it actually works to live in this creation of mine. When it comes to ordering our thoughts and desires, when it comes to shaping our prayers and worship, when it comes to preparing for death, nothing outdoes scripture. I mean, think about this this simple mind-boggling fact. Even the resurrected Jesus had a Bible study with his disciples to teach them the importance of God's word. Think about that. The risen Jesus takes the time to have a Bible study as one of the first things he does with his followers to help them make sense of this world. And this is something, this is what David was capturing in Psalm 19 in verse 7 when he said, the law of the Lord is perfect. He was saying, holy cow, look at this gift we've been given. The Bible, scripture, with all its rules and stories, its prayers and its history. This is God's word. It's interesting. In Exodus 24, Moses tells them the law of God. And they they say, we'll do it. And that's not enough. So then Moses writes it down. And then they say, we'll do it. Why? Because God wants you to have confidence that the written scriptures are God's word. That you can trust the Bible. God wrote the Bible. He is its source. It is true and it is trustworthy. And it is our wedding gift. Now, so in Israel's wedding ceremony, we have the blood, we have the Bible. And then we have the vows. Exodus 24, the last half of verse 7. The people of Israel, after Moses read them God's law, the people of Israel said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. If you've been reading Exodus like a story, this is pretty big because Exodus didn't start here and they didn't have a smooth journey to this point. Remember back in chapter five, the Israelites were filled with doubt and skepticism. They had lapsed into unbelief and despair and that was understandable given the traumatic effects of of being slaves, it is entirely natural that it is difficult for people who've experienced the trauma of God not keeping his promises, it's entirely natural that it becomes difficult for them to believe. And, And you know this, right? Either you or somebody you know has gone through experiences that it makes no sense that God didn't rescue them from. And that can scramble us into skepticism and doubt. The combination of personal trauma and social intimidation devastated Israel's capacity to think straight about reality, much less to believe in God or to trust him. The bedrock foundations of their belief were undermined 
So how did Israel go from disbelief in chapter 5 to belief, from skepticism in chapter 5 to this total commitment of allegiance in chapter 24? Well, it's interesting to read, read Exodus and try to figure that out. How did they, well, it wasn't a straight path. There were lots of bends and turns in the road, but basically they made it from skepticism to commitment because of what God did. Because God stepped in and through miracles kept his promises to Israel. And he showed Israel that he was more powerful than the gods of Egypt. And at the Red Sea, he demonstrated that it wasn't Pharaoh who was in charge of the universe. It was Yahweh. And, and, and when, when this stuff occurred, when, when they experienced God paying attention, caring, listening, keeping his promises, they responded to that in faith. If you know someone, or if you have suffered your way into skepticism, then pray that God would do for you or the person you know what he did for Israel. That he would give that person a fresh encounter with God. And, and Israel responds to that with declaring her trust and loyalty and obedience. And God gives Israel the law. And as we'll see next week, he gives Israel the tabernacle. And these are the gifts that God gives Israel at her wedding. And I just love how it's so clear that Israel's vow of obedience is not coerced. It's freely given. It's clear here that it's given out of gratitude, not out of like the way Pharaoh demanded obedience. God acts, offers, and calls. Israel responds, accepts, and agrees. This isn't enforced submission. This is a willing acceptance of the authority and the will of God who demonstrated his faithfulness and love and saving power. And isn't that what we pray for ourselves and for our loved ones and those who do not know Christ? In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the apostle Paul wrote that Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Not that he loved the world. Yes, he loved the world. But to say that God loves the world doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Paul said he loves me. Don't just think that the death of Christ was for the human race. It was. But it was also for you personally. I hope that you can enjoy being loved by God personally. And I hope that you can look back at the cross and know that Jesus died not just to save the world, but to save you. And I hope that you, like the Israelites, can look back at God, who they looked back at God delivering them from Egypt. I hope you can look back at the cross and see King Jesus, you're saving you and delivering you. And you can give him, because of that, your love and your loyalty and your gratitude and your unswerving obedience. And so in the wedding ceremony between God and Israel, we've seen the blood and the Bible, the vows. And as you know, if you've ever been to a really good wedding, there is no good wedding without a feast, right? Like we get that tradition from somewhere. 
The last element at a great wedding is always the feast. And so it is not a coincidence that in verse 9 we read, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Of course they did. Because that's what you do at a wedding. You see the glory of the bride and the groom, and then you feast. There's so much going on in Exodus 24, verses 9 to 11, but we only have time to focus on that one phrase. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. Just imagine it, right? Um, The key to Exodus 24 is imagining the um, spatial geography. Here they are. They are halfway up the mountain. They're halfway between heaven and earth. And they have this moment, this experience, in which just for a moment, heaven comes to earth. They beheld God. And they ate and they drank. It's astonishing. So much about that we'd like to know about. But, but what we can tell for sure is that this wasn't just some quick picnic stack, snack because a group of old dudes had to climb back down a mountain. This was a moment When the veil between heaven and earth was lifted. Why? So that they could celebrate the wedding. Just like the meals we enjoy at weddings. They were eating and drinking on the mountain of God. In the presence of God. Profoundly conscious of God's overwhelming majesty. God did not reach out his hand and strike them. And yet safe. Safe enough. To feast unharmed. Why? Because of the blood. Because of the covenant grace. And this is a picture of what we get to do every Sunday. When we who have been sprinkled by his blood. And heard his word read. Every Sunday. Sunday. That's what this. That's what a worship service is. It's a renewal of the wedding. Right? Every Sunday. All of these elements I'm going through are part of this service that we have. And here they were. And here we are. And we, we hear the word and we commit our allegiance to him. And we get to feast in his awesome presence here in worship at Eucharist, partway between heaven and earth. Did you know that? Did you know that this is a lot more than just remembering? That this is an actual feast in the presence of the actual God. And the miracle is that he doesn't reach out and strike us. And he doesn't because of his blood. Are there other ways that we get to see God and eat and drink in his presence? The New Testament says there are. One of the other ways is when you read the gospel accounts of the meals of Jesus ironically, Jesus basically eats his way through the Gospels. I mean, it's just all over the place that he's eating with people. And who is Jesus? What are we going to say in a few weeks at Advent and at Christmas? He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so when you're reading the Gospel accounts and you're seeing Jesus eating with people, you are seeing God and you're getting to feast on him. You're getting to drink him and eat him in your imagination. So from the wedding feast in Cana to the breakfast on the shore of Galilee, those who eat with Jesus in the Gospels are eating in the presence of the living God. 
There's another way we get to see God and feast with him, the New Testament says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 tells us that if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So, when you and I, when Christians love each other in practical, sacrificial, costly, barrier-dissolving ways, then the God who is love can be seen. The world should be able to look at Christians and how we live together and love together and see something of the reality of God being demonstrated. The invisible God makes himself visible in the love that Christians have for one another. But will we ever get to really do this? Right? All that's good. But doesn't it feel like not enough, to be quite honest? I mean, honestly. Like if I wasn't a preacher and standing up here and, and you could be honest. I mean, couldn't you say after I said those two things, oh, that's nice. But am I ever going to get to really see God and really eat in his presence? We will. And that's where the Bible ends. There's this, um, this amazing meal at Sinai that a few of Israel leaders were so privileged to experience. And those who lived on the earth during the time of Jesus, they got to experience. Aren't you jealous? Don't you want in on some of that action? Oh, here's the deal. As amazing and mind-boggling as the meal at Sinai was, it was just a foreshadowing of a much greater meal laid on by God himself with a guest list infinitely larger than 74 geriatric mountaineers. It will be nothing less than a banquet for the nations of the earth where God will personally stoop to wipe away the tears from your face. I, I love, one of my favorite descriptions of it is in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on this day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice. You will say that one day. All that crap that you are waiting for him to deal with, all that hurt, all those wounds, all that repeated sinning, one day you're going to, be there. What Revelation, in our, in our passage from Revelation, calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. One day you'll be there. 
And you're going to say, this is what I was always waiting for. I love how it, the Bible ends with this, this great wedding feast of the Lamb to which all the redeemed from every tribe and nation and language are invited. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! That's what you and I are going to get to say one day. Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Aren't you ready to say that? Aren't you ready to say that he's really running the show? That there's not a square inch, that he's not making it the way it ought to be. Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright linen and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are true. These are the words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers. For the testimony of Jesus is, look, we will get this. So when you read Exodus 24, be jealous and look forward. And like it says, blessed are those who are invited. I hope you have taken God up on his invitation. And if you haven't, what are you waiting for? Let's pray.